just curious, Nick, as to whether that was applause for the class or for yourself as you were reading. Thanks to me. Thanks, Mitch. My name is Dee. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and uh, as always, such a privilege to take you into the passage um, for our morning. And this morning was the passage that Mitch read from Luke uh, chapter 3, and um, so that will be our reference point as we go through this. I do want to bring a few people kind of up to speed for those who might not have been here last week as to what we're doing here in the, um, during the next four months, and that is we're attempting to... Um, be more aware of the rhythm that we have on Sunday mornings in terms of uh, the teaching and the scripture reading. Last, last uh, week I did a kind of an introduction that talked about the lectionary. I'm not going to go through all of that at all, but I do just want to say that the lectionary is simply a collection of scripture readings. The one that we follow takes us through a three-year cycle, and every Sunday there are four readings, one from the Gospels, one from another area in the New Testament, one from uh, Psalms, and one from an Old Testament reading. During the month of January, we're, we are going to use the reading that is from the Gospels. During the month of February, we're going to use the readings that are from the Psalms. Um, March will be the um, other Old Testament reading in April that includes this year Easter. We will be in the um, other second New Testament reading. So that's the rhythm that we're trying to follow. We try and incorporate many of those scriptures in our services. This particular service, we try and include at least two of the readings in the course of our morning, but I might make mention of some of the others. Um, I also made mention last week that one of the things that it helps us do is to be sensitive to the theme of the Christian calendar and the special seasons that are part of our journey. Uh, wrapping up Advent at Christmas time, um, Lent that leads us into Easter. We had last week the first Sunday after Christmas Sunday is Epiphany. And then every year, the Sunday that comes after Epiphany, which is the celebration of the good news for the Gentile world with the visit of the Magi to the baby Jesus, the next Sunday always um, includes a reading from the gospel that speaks about the baptism of Jesus. It's interesting that all four of the gospels record the baptism of Jesus. Only two of the gospels speak about the birth of Jesus. But all four record the baptism of Jesus. So last year we were in a different gospel, but we looked at this just a year ago, and the focus of last year's reading which I'm sure everybody here remembers. Wasn't supposed to be humorous, but okay. Was um, a focus on the words of the Father when the heavens opened up. This year, we're in the Gospel of Luke, and I would like to start right in the middle of the story and work out from there. The words that the focus we focused on a year ago in this particular gospel rendering would be verse 22, which is where the father says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. What I want to look at to start with is verse 17, a rather unusual line, at least a little strange to some of us. It's 
the verse that says, this is John the Baptist, referencing to the one who comes after him, we know is Jesus. We jump into this story right in the middle. But it says of Jesus that his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean or purge the threshing floor. It says that then the grains of wheat will be gathered into the barn, and the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. There is in every language and in every culture what we sometimes refer to as colloquialisms. They are lines or phrases that are born out of a culture's experience, using the language to try and describe something, usually based on some, sometimes it has become a tradition or a major event in that culture's history. Sometimes they are bent toward a particular age group. Sometimes they are bent toward a particular portion of the country or culture. But we all know them whether we recognize them or not. They fill our language every day. And they are so familiar to us that we never question them. They simply make sense. So if you were to hear the phrase, boy, she poured her guts out for you. We all know what that means. But if there's someone who's just learning the English language, new to the culture, and they hear that phrase, the response is going to be repulsion. Oh, what? I don't get it. It's not, a colloquialism is not unique to our culture, but each one of those phrases is unique to the culture. And so we hear it and we don't even give it a second thought. I have a daughter who is a master of crunching together multiple colloquialisms so that they don't make any sense at all. There was one of those that we just laughed about in the car, but it was kind of smashing together of he has a head start over others and he's got a leg up on other people, and somehow it was up over his head on something. I don't exactly know what it was, but I didn't understand it at first because it was kind of smashed together. But if you hear the phrase, he has a leg up on everybody else, you know that that phrase references somebody who seems to have a head start, somebody who has some advantages that others may not have. But once again, if you're just learning the language, if you're new to the culture, if your cultural history doesn't have that as part of its experience, you'd hear that phrase and be confused. Well, we hear this verse, verse 17, and very few of us have agriculture as a threshing ground. And if we do, very few of us have ever experienced a threshing floor or winnowing fork. And most of us, having grown up in a very different way, come to this verse and we think we get pieces of it. But maybe we ought to start right here and spend a little more time thinking through what this imagery is. So in this part of the world, wasn't unique to this part of the world, but it was predominant in this part of the world. A threshing floor was not an indoor space, it was an outdoor space. And it was a space that would be somewhat close some to where grain of wheat or barley would be stored, either in a barn or a shed or someplace that was covered. 
but it would also be close to where the crops were gathered, typically on a higher level of ground. One of the reasons that was important was that it would allow it to dry out sooner than other portions of ground. You'll see why that's important in a few moments, but it would be a higher plane, a plane that would drain quickly, circular in nature, but not circular because it had to be, circular because of how it got used. It was a space that was maybe larger, a third of this room, could be a little bit smaller, could be a little bit larger, but probably larger than you might think. Hard and packed down dirt, attempted to make it harder and more packed down, and if there were ruts or indentations, one who was very attentive to this threshing floor would fill that in and try and pound it down and make it even flatter, smoother, and harder. Then what would happen at the time of harvest, all of the stalks of wheat or barley would be gathered up and would be laid out on the threshing floor. So you've got the stalk, you've got the husk, and inside the husk is the grain. And the important part of all of this is the grain. The husk and the stalk are basically worthless. What we need for life or sustenance is the grain on the inside of that husk. And so on this large threshing floor, a large animal like an ox would just begin to walk the threshing floor on top of all that had been laid on the threshing floor over and over and over again. The reason they were typically circular in nature was that was typically the task of the animal, the creature, that would go around and around and around and around and around and around. Long and tedious, hard work. Typically led by the owner or the one who was gathering the grain, sometimes tethered by a rope. If the threshing, which is what that portion of it was called, took place in the morning, you could watch in the morning air as the heat off of the animal rose off and there was like a moisture that escaped into the atmosphere. Notice off in the distance the sun rising and the land coming to life. purpose was the weight of the hooves would separate the stalk from the husk and then the husk from the grain. Sometimes it would be a mule or a donkey and behind the mule or a donkey would be tethered some rope and at the back on the ground what the donkey was pulling was a, about a three by five foot sheet of wood. On the bottom of the wood would either be stones or flint or sometimes spikes that would be poking through the wood and it would actually function as a heavy object, given that the donkey wasn't quite as heavy as an ox, and would try and replace that weight by having things, projectiles that would come out from that wood that would tear at and rip at whatever was laid on the threshing floor. This was hard, difficult work, and it's almost as if the threshing itself was an incredibly destructive process. 
once the threshing had taken place, you have a large floor area covered with these three things. The stalk, the husk, and the grain. Now comes the process that Sarah was putting those things out. And the second reason why the threshing floor would sit up higher on a higher plane of ground. And that is so that it might get the full effect of any wind that Mother Nature might send this way. It certainly was possible for some people to create a, a wind by waving pieces of cloth to try and create a breeze that would go through. But hopefully there would be enough that would happen by nature that the person with the winnowing fork, what we might know as a large pitchfork, would walk the entire threshing floor and fork and take a big shovel load of this on the winnowing fork and just throw it up into the air. I wouldn't throw the pitching fork. I shouldn't have opened my hand. I'd hold on to the pitching fork, just thrust up all that was on the ground. Because the grain is heavier than the husk and the stalk, the wind would blow that lighter stuff away and the grain would drop to the threshing floor. Over and over again, pitched into the air, things would begin to separate. Pitched into the air, it would begin to separate. As time passed, the grain would begin to gather toward the center of the threshing floor and all of the chaff would begin to move to the side as the wind blew it away. The grain would be gathered into piles, sometimes formed into cakes. And those would be stored in the shed or the barn for food, for sustenance, for life. And the chaff, the husks and the stalks would be burned. So this is the imagery we have as we find John making the proclamation that he comes with a winnowing fork in his hand. He will thoroughly clean or purge the threshing floor, gathering the wheat into the barn and burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. So now we've got the center of this passage. Now let's move out to the periphery a bit to understand a little bit more of the context of what sets this up for John the Baptist as Luke is writing this story. We have the context of the setting of what the people are experiencing. We know that the people were looking for the Messiah. Jesus was born, but years has passed. Close to three decades. And not much has changed. If anything has changed, things have gotten worse. There certainly have been some up and down cycles in those 30 years, but the oppression of Rome, the ways in which the local tetrarchs and governors ruled, it was not easy for the people at all. We have the setting very specifically named at the beginning of chapter 3 where we're told that Tiberius Caesar is in charge. He is in charge of the Roman Empire. 
has been at this time, I think for about 15 years, is what Scripture tells us. He has given power to some local authorities, those who will pay appropriate homage to Rome. And so we have Pontius Pilate, who's down overseeing Judea, including Jerusalem. We have the brothers, who are both called Tetrarch, Herod, and his brother Philip. Now, this is a different Herod than the Herod that was around when Jesus was a baby. The descendants, called Herod, and his brother Philip, both Tetrarchs. And then we are told that Annas and Caiaphas are the high priests. What Luke has done in this except for us has told us all of the people who are ruling power and all of the people who are the objects of the Hebrew people's frustration. It seems very evident that the threshing that has taken place has come at the hands of those who are in power. The ox is spread over the general population. The board with the flints and rocks and spikes that have separated the chaff from the grain has been those who have exerted their own authority and power and left the people in frustration, some in poverty, some in prison, and all under somebody else's rule, nowhere close to the promised land that has been part of their history. It doesn't say that Jesus comes as the threshing floor. He comes as the one with a winnowing fork in his hand. The threshing has already taken place or is in process of taking place. We talked about last week that God can use whomever God chooses to use. And there at least is an argument here that says, in spite of what we might think about Rome and Pontius Pilate and Herod and Philip, the threshing that has taken place, God now can use in a powerful way. John went out into the wilderness and received a word from the Lord, is what Scripture says. A prophetic word, a word that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Prepare ye the way. And so John, around the area of the Jordan River, proclaims the good news to all. Begins to baptize people into this good news message, this repentance. It appears as if John's baptism actually became popular. There were people who were leading rebellions all throughout the countryside. The anticipation of a Messiah led many to think, okay, who's next? And, and I want to be on the ground floor of what takes place if, if we're going to rise to power again. I want to be part of that. And John's message was becoming popular with the people. In fact, some wondered, could this be the Messiah? And crowds gather, crowds that John questioned their motives. Were they really interested in being true disciples, or were they just trying to get in on the latest and greatest? Did they realize the 
price that comes with baptism into following God in this fashion? Or do they simply want to be identified with a group just in case? Just in case there's a new boss in town. Just in case there's new power. Just in case. And John calls them out. Calls them a bunch of snakes. And he says, if you think as a snake that all it takes to get clean is a little water on your skin, you're mistaken. It's a pretty harsh indictment from John. And so, it is logical then to make the assumption that the winnowing fork that separates the chaff from the grain is the separation of those who really are intent on being followers of the good news from those who are just expressing a self-serving interest. I don't think that's wrong. I just think it's not the only message here. Because there are people who hear the message of John and says, oh, if you're going to call us out on this, then tell us what we need to do to actually be disciples. John has very specific, very practical uh, response to them. To the crowds, he says, for those of you that have two cloaks, give one away. Keep one, but give one away. Do the same with your food. See those who are in need around you. Those who are tax collectors came to John and said, so what should we be doing? And he says, well, don't. Then the soul don't take from people more than the law requires. Then the soldiers came and said, what should we do? And John says, well, certainly no more extortion, no more blackmail. Be content with what you have. Very practical ways that begin to separate. Are you willing to follow where discipleship calls us? Or are you just showing up because it seems like the right thing to do? He says to the crowd, I baptize you with water, but the one who is coming after me baptizes you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Here's why I think that it's adding more than just a separation of people left here, though I think that that's very true. Because he says that the Holy Spirit will baptize you Jesus, the one who follows me, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This imagery that comes in verse 17, the winnowing fork, the threshing floor, and burning the chaff with fire, if the fire is going toward those who are disciples, those who are being baptized into this gospel picture, what does it mean to those people? I, I think of the image of Jesus taking the harvest of my life, all of the aspects of my life, throwing them into the air and seeing what the wind blows away. Have you ever felt like that just the latest wind 
blew your feet out from underneath you, the, the latest thing that happened, and then it happened so quickly, it, it seems to happen because I knew it happened, a, a visit to the doctor and didn't even see that come in, and all of a sudden it's like life got blown away, of being called into the boss's office, and all of a sudden the prospect of the future seems dramatically different. A relationship that seemed like the rock-solid thing on which you could build so much of your journey, a change in circumstances in your family system, a, a whatever it might be, and all of a sudden the wind blew and nothing looks the same anymore. I spent 13 years in Oklahoma City, Tornado Alley, just south of it, a community that is sometimes viewed as a a suburb on the south side of Oklahoma City has been the site of two enormous tornadoes. And I, I'm sure you've seen pictures of funnel clouds that come down and create some havoc. These tornadoes are when this huge rotating wall of storm descends not in a little funnel cloud, but in a movement that spans a quarter of a mile. And it doesn't take out some houses on a street. It takes out whole neighborhoods. All the, the wind blows. And all of a sudden, everything is different. In those moments, who am I? Where do I find my identity? This message of Jesus being baptized and what is the call to us to follow in Jesus' footsteps is a message to find our identity in Christ. The powerful thing that Jesus was doing is he's saying Jesus is Lord, which then means Tiberius Caesar is not Lord. That's dangerous. Can I tell you something that's maybe even more threatening to us? When I identify in this way, and Jesus is Lord, it means that I'm not Lord. And there's a whole lot of chaff in my life associated with that I had a dream this last week. Now, I had a very strange one, but most all of my dreams are strange. This one, I am in a foreign country. I'm not familiar with any of the signs and the language that are on the signs. I'm in a busy marketplace, and I know that I need to get change for the currency that's in my pocket, so I go to a, it's a very nice kind of newsstand, bookstore kind of place, and there's a well-dressed gentleman behind this desk, and he's looking at a very fancy, high-gloss magazine, and I thought, that's how I'll get change for my currency. I'll just buy a magazine and, and break the currency that's in my pocket. Break the currency, that's a colloquialism as well. Get change for the currency that's in my pocket. And, and I go up to him and I ask to buy, I don't know what I remember saying in the dream was, I'd like that American Express magazine. And I 
realized that it was probably going to be more expensive than I thought, and then I came to realize it was going to be almost $20 to pay for that magazine. And he said something to me that threw me off. Uh, first, I didn't understand it. I asked him to say it again, and then I didn't think I heard it right, and so I leaned forward the third time, and he said, you're buying her a book full of unhappiness. And then I woke up. And I have learned to attention to the odd things that happen to me in the middle of the night and use them as a way to reflect. And so I sat up in the darkness of the night in my bed and just reflected. Of the many things in my life, magazines, books, TV shows, commercials, conversations, articles, the page after page, scroll after scroll, article after article, reminds me of everything that I don't have. All of the things that I need. If they do remind me of the things that I have, they're basically telling me there's medication for that and I can get rid of it if I want to. Unhappy. It is page after page, at least at some level, of unhappiness because of what it reminds me of. If my identity is in those things, that includes some of the comparisons of life as I compare myself to you, as I compare myself to someone else who seems to be doing so well, as I compare my lack of success in areas or the wind blew and what I don't have or the uncertainties, I find myself sometimes striving, sometimes bemoaning, sometimes depressed over those comparisons to be true. The call of John in this passage is a call to find our identity in the way God created us to be. There is no call from John that says you shouldn't have a cloak, a coat, you shouldn't have a nice one. He's just saying, if you have extra, make a difference in somebody else's life. If God's poured out blessing on you, is there a way about which you can be a blessing upon somebody else? Because your identity is not in any of those things. Your identity is found in the image of God that's been stamped on you. The power of verse 22 that we referenced a year ago is found in in this kind of a context where the heavens open up and God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. No ministry has taken place. No miracles have happened yet. No water has been changed to wine. Nothing has happened. Here we have the father simply saying, he's mine. I love him. And the spirit of God descended upon him. And do you know morning? The question out of this passage of Scripture is, do you know that the heavens open up this morning, God looks on you and says, you're the one I love. You're my child. I'm so pleased that you are mine. If our identity is in there, we have found the grain of life apart from all of the chaff. Is it possible that sometimes when the threshing takes place and when the wind blows, it's the very thing 
that knocks us awake to our identity in Christ. So what is it possible that some of the fire that takes place is the burning of the chaff, the wonderful work of the Holy Spirit that is patient enough with us so that as those difficult times, God can use them in a way to push away the chaff and say, but I want you to realize who you are and what you have. I want you to realize who you are. You're mine. My child. I love you. I am so pleased to call you mine. What would it be like as well if we saw that in others? If we were able to look past the chaff. Good chaff, bad chaff, I don't know. Look past it to see the image of God in someone else. This isn't really a call to easy discipleship. I just want to remind you that the very next chapter in Luke, Jesus' life is threatened. Goes from being baptized in the approval of the Father to proclaiming the good news in ways that upset the fruit basket so much that they begin to find a way to do away with him. What happens in Jesus' world for us? The wind blows so quickly. It can happen overnight. It can be things over which we have no control. An economic downturn. A political election. A running out of resources. A paycheck in jeopardy. Death of a loved one. medical condition that seems so daunting you don't know what to do with. Into these places, we have the opportunity to hear the message of one who comes with a winnowing fork in his hand, wanting to clean the floor of all of the chaff and get to the core of who you are and remind you of the one to whom you belong. Lord who came to lay down his own life that we might have eternal life. That we might find in our journey those things that have eternal value, eternal hope, to live eternal promise. And that somehow that might cause us to live our daily journey in ways that align with those things that bring long-lasting happiness. There are certainly a lot of things that cause the endorphins to flow, gives us the trigger of dopamine, and, and right now, wow, that was pleasurable. Does it somehow cloud the ways in which those things have such short-lasting value if we could begin to tap into the things that give us shalom, peace, a journey of contentedness that melted to places that transformed the world around us. This is the call to discipleship. Not a quick washing, but a deep cleansing. 
not just a sprinkling, but a purging. A transformation that gets to the core of the grains of life and help us to see others with that same dignity. The call to the kingdom where Jesus is Lord. Father, I thank you this morning for your gospel message, for your willingness to be fire in our life. So Lord, I ask that somehow this morning if we feel fresh, if we feel like the circumstances of this journey have left us broken apart, torn apart, where all around us we see what feels like circumstances that have beaten us down, or Lord, nothing seems to have happened, no movement in our life. Will you come, Lord? May the winds of your grace pour through us, toss us into the air with your grace-filled winnowing fork, and allow the winds to push away the chaff. The things that we thought were important, allow them simply to be lost so that they can be replaced with that which is pure and good and right. It's not by what we've done, Lord, it's because you've discovered within us a pearl of great price. You've discovered within us a treasure. You have brought to the surface in us the thing that you claim is your own, your image. Help us, Lord, to live into that. May the fire burn away that which is temporal and leave pure gold, refined by your fire, Lord, may the life that is within us be given room to grow, roots to go down deep, and fruit that honors you. This morning, Lord, for some of us, this may be a time of whatever, a recognition of your ability to work in whatever circumstances we're facing, a moment of surrender to you. Brothers, Lord, this may be the first step of what feels like an unbelievable, incredible journey. A moment to simply ask forgiveness, to restore hope, Lord. Nothing we've deserved or earned, but simply because you call out from within us the grains of life and joy. So wherever each one of us is, Lord, this morning, may it become very practical for us, giving ourselves over to your work, reflecting on those things that are trapped. Help us, Lord, this morning to see that image within us that is 